Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. We started Philippians last week and looked at the first 11 verses, and we're continuing in this. And uh, I thought I would do the cute pastor thing, and so all of my lessons begin with an H. Isn't that exciting? And it's like Philippians doesn't even start with H. I don't know why, but I just as I was doing this, like, oh, this, oh, look, in chapter two, he's talking about humility, and in the first part, he's talking about this. And so today's lesson is simply called Here. Hear the word of the Lord. So let me invite you to stand if you're willing and able as we hear the word of the Lord in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, And in that I rejoice, and we rejoice that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me invite you to be seated. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I was doing campus ministry, and I had a young man uh, who had been involved with our ministry, getting ready to graduate, come and tell me that he was leaving me a note that he had written in my office for me, in one of my books. And uh, I said, okay, which book did you leave it in? And he said, you'll find it. And I said, have you you seen my office? I have a lot of books in my office. In which book did you leave the note? And he said, you'll find it. And so when we got through the conversation, I went back to my office to see if I could find the note. And I looked in all the normal places. I looked at the books right beside the door. No. I looked at the books on my desk. No. It's been 15 years. I have never found that note. (laughs) We have moved. I have given away books. Somebody, if he left me a check for like $500, somebody's like, easy money right here. I have no idea what was in that because he didn't tell me what book to find the note in. I have no clue what he wanted to tell me. Now, here's the beautiful thing. God has not left it up to us to guess where he's spoken to us. He's told us it's in the Bible. This is the book that if we want to know what God has said, we go to the Bible. So now as we begin... I'm going to say three things about the Bible. This is not the sermon, but just to make sure, you know, we kind of are thinking about what the Bible is and what it's about. So three big truths about the Bible is, one, the Bible is historically accurate. It is an accurate record of real events in the real world regarding God. In this way, it's a little bit like a court reporter trying to get the facts and details and the things that took place in the courtroom right, because you have to get the facts right. And when it comes to God, we need to get the facts right. Right, and the Bible is not a book of symbolic myth about what people think God was like. It was a record of God's real dealing with people in real events 
in the world. So can the Bible be corroborated with real archaeological uh, historical events? And the answer is yes, time and time again. Or maybe we could say it this way, real historical events can be corroborated by looking at the Bible because it's that accurate. Number two, the Bible is divinely inspired, and this means that God is the ultimate author. Even though human hands actually wrote and put the, the, the pages of the Bible uh, down for us, God is the ultimate source, and the Bible explains this and says that the people who wrote the Bible wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that what they wrote were their words, and what they wrote was also God's word. So that means when we come to a passage like this in Philippians, we can learn a lot about what God is telling us by looking at the life of Paul. What was Paul going through, and what was he communicating, and how can we learn about God? But at the same time, God is speaking through us so we can learn a ton about him. This is what he wants us to know. It's here in his word. And then number three, the Bible is a record of God's relentless determination to redeem his people. Uh, Timothy Keller says this. He says, the Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how God breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness otherwise you would never be able to overcome. And we call this God breaking into our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has died and God has broken in. So we started talking about the Bible and preaching and the word of God because that's really what Paul is talking about in this passage. And a lot of things we're going to see were unexpected. The things he wrote to the Philippian church, they weren't expecting in any way and sometimes we don't expect them, so we need to talk about them. So three things, I can't remember where they all are right now, but let's get started. So, one, um, there's an unexpected attitude from the gospel. There's an unexpected attitude that Paul is displaying here from the gospel, the gospel impact upon him. This is called a prison letter or a prison epistle. Paul is writing this while he's in prison, and uh, for house arrest, he's for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so in this passage, when you actually hear him talk about his imprisonment, uh, he's actually, the word is chains. He's literally in chains in house arrest in Rome. Now, the background appears to be the same incident that's recorded in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul was arrested after a group of Jews opposed to Paul's message about Jesus being the Messiah caused a public disturbance. Paul was taken into custody. He's falsely accused to make the long story short, which you can read about at the end of Acts, Paul appealed to Caesar, so the powers that be sent him to Rome, where he was kept under house arrest and unable to leave, chained at all times to a Roman guard who were there for six-hour shifts with him. And this went on for over a year. And so it was in this situation that Paul apparently wrote the letter to the Philippians. Now, being in jail would have seemed a huge failure. To most people or a setback this was not what Paul signed up for I haven't signed up for that um, so how is he so positive well Paul had a gospel shaped attitude I mean he could easily be discouraged if he thought his plan was the only way that God could work and that his plan was best instead of God's plan being best but Paul has already run up into that roadblock in his life when he was younger because when he was a uh, a, a zealous Jew, zealous for the traditions of his people, he set out for the sake of 
for God's sake, daring to do a great deed for God, he set out to try to eliminate the church and to go and take the Christians and put them in jail. So he had letters to do this, and he was going to arrest Christians when the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul on the road and said, why do you kick against the goads? And he's And basically what Jesus is saying is, Paul, you are setting yourself up against the purposes of God. So Paul, when he was a younger person, had realized that sometimes God must rescue us from the daring deeds that we seek to do in his name. And so Paul had received grace when he thought he was doing things for God, but realized later, I am opposed to the things of God. And what we realize is grace is experienced greatly in God redirecting us to something different something that we would not have chosen to do in the first place. Rebecca and I have some friends. Um, they came through our, one of them came through our campus ministry when we were there at Clemson for years. And uh, when they were young, they both wanted to be missionaries. And then they found each other in college uh, or post-college, and then they got married, and then guess what? They raised support. They went on the mission field for a short time, and then he got, he got sick or that kid got sick. I can't remember. You know what I'm talking about. I can't say it on the microphone because it's being videoed. There you go. Okay, that's what, yeah. Well, now we're on the same page. It's good. It's good. She's my brain. That's how I have to just like, well, what were their names again? Where's, where are my keys? Um, and so he got incredibly sick. Just so you know, that was a real story too. I didn't make this up. So she's like, oh, she verified that. That's good. So he got incredibly sick. They didn't know why. And so the only doctors in the world where they could actually uh, get some help was in the, were in the United States. So they left the mission field, moved back here. They had to get jobs. They were getting him checked out and everything. And then, unbeknownst to them, the city where they moved, where you know, everything was taking place, had a huge immigrant population. And so they ended up doing international missions here in the United States. And it ended up being a fantastic situation with a good local church they were involved with and getting internationals plugged in. It's a great situation. God knew what he was doing. But it wasn't what they were planning to do. Those weren't their plans. But God took them down a different road and said, these are my plans for you. So Paul's attitude in the gospel is not, you know, God is that God loves me. My plan is not necessarily God's plan, but God's plan is best, right? So there's an unexpected attitude in the gospel. But we also see this as we begin pushing through, and this is where we're going to spend a little time. There's an unexpected advance of the gospel in the midst of this. Uh, and one of those is, comes through an unexpected avenue to the gospel. In, in verse 13, it, 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 he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So if ever it seemed like ministry was coming to a halt, it would be put in house arrest, chained to be in prison. But Paul says, nope, it actually serve the opposite. It advanced the gospel. Now think about this. Paul is in house arrest. He is chained for six hours at a time to these guards. So these guys who wouldn't have heard the gospel any other way find themselves chained for six hours to an evangelist. What do you think they talked about for six hours? <laughs> so what uh, these imperial guards were exposed to the gospel. And of course, as the Philippians are reading this passage, is reading this letter for the first time, this isn't the first time that Paul's been arrested and guards are listening to what he says. When he was in Philippi, you can read this in Acts chapter 16, Paul's there and they're singing hymns in the middle of the night. There's an earthquake, the, the jail cells fly open 
and there is a Philippian guard who's there, and in the process, you can read about this in Acts 16, in the process of all of this, the Philippian jailer is brought to faith in Jesus by listening to the prisoners who are singing in the middle of the night and talking about Jesus. So, you can, you know, don't you know when they're reading the letter out, everybody's like, Chuck, that happened to you. Remember that? So they knew he's right there in their midst. We, can, we have a picture of the gospel going out and, and, and uh, affecting people that, who would never have re- heard it otherwise. So an unexpected avenue. Uh, there's also an unexpected result because Paul says that more believers were courageously beginning to proclaim the good news. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. If the opponents of Paul's message were trying to intimidate the church into silence, it was completely backfiring because they, that energized the, brother, the Christians and they began telling more and more. And here's the reason, because for people with the word of God in their hearts and the spirit of work in their lives and the deep faith in Jesus, there's something inspiring about seeing or hearing about someone who because of their faith in Jesus is willing to suffer for Jesus and his gospel. There's this old saying um, from a martyr, I don't remember what century it was in, but it was said, the blood, I guess it was a historian, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Where you see persecution, you often see the gospel going out with a greater force and greater power and greater speed and because people are beginning to deal with what do I really believe? What is the world really like? And so if you've ever heard accounts of, the, of missions going forth in Ethiopia or in China or in other parts of the world where people are persecuted, the gospel is growing in those societies. It's being spread because people are counting the cost and saying, I want to be with Jesus and I'm willing to tell that name to everybody no matter what it costs me, right? That's what happens is there's an unexpected result. And then in verse 15 and 18, he tells us there's an unexpected source. Um, uh, Paul tells us there what would seem like an obstacle because it's pretentious people. You know, they're talking about Jesus and they have these hidden motives. So in verse 15 we read, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So Paul's very honest about motives. He's, he's not whitewashing it to reduce scandals, but he looks at the big picture and say, God even uses people with mixed motives to proclaim the gospel message to the world. So verse 18, he says, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, Paul doesn't say he rejoices because there were hordes of people converted. He says, I rejoice because the gospel is proclaimed. One, that gives real credit, to, gives praise and honor to Jesus, regardless of whether people believe it or not. But I think there is another reason for it, why he rejoices that people are preaching and people are hearing. It's in Romans 10. Paul writes, how are, they, how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Right? They couldn't go into an app on their phone back then. Right? Yeah. They couldn't go. There weren't printing presses. So how did the message of the gospel go forward? It went forward mouth to ear. People telling, people talking, people telling about what, who Jesus is and, and the claims. And so whether it's from somebody who has mixed motives or somebody who has pure motives, people were hearing, which was great. But I think there's another reason that Paul was excited that so many people were hearing. And, 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 uh, and I'm drawing this from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. 
where it says the word of God, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, I just want to think about that for just a little bit because we're talking about the word of God and there's a verse that says that the word of God always returns to God accomplishing that purpose for which he sent it. It always returns back to him accomplishing what he wants it to accomplish. So in living, he says the word of God is living. He's saying this is not a lifeless thing. The word of God is not a lifeless thing like a, a flimsy rag doll opponent, right? I love, I love movies, and then some of those old movies, they didn't yet know how to do stunt doubles, and so they would often have these kind of like ragdoll mannequins that people would fight with, and they would throw them, and they'd just be these stiff things that just kind of like, they, they clearly weigh about five pounds, and they throw them, and it's like, wow, that guy's so strong, throwing the, the lifeless ragdoll mannequin across the way, but put him in the arena with a life, with a real live uh, human being, and uh, you can't do whatever you want to. With a living opponent who has real muscles and determination, his own will, uh, you don't really stand a chance sometimes. And this is what he's saying with God's word. It's, it's alive. It cannot be easily overcome or escape the word of God. It, it accomplishes the purpose for which God sent it. It is powerful. God speaks and universes are created. God speaks and the dead come back to life. It accomplishes the purpose for which God is speaking it. So he says it's living, but he also says it's active. Right? It's, 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 it's not alive like a mushroom or a slug. It's alive like a lion that has legs. It has power in the sinews. It's active. You can't make it stop. You can't hold it at bay. You can't wish it away. It's alive and it's on the move. Right? God's word is living and active. He says it's sharper than any double-edged sword, meaning that it has this tendency, this power to get in between the cracks. It gets in and you can't get it out. It, it finds a way in. It gets into your mind and brings up questions you can't answer, brings up longings you can't deny, and brings up truths you can't avoid. You cover your ears, it's still there. You try to close your eyes and you still see those verses coming across your mind. Right? The word of God is like that. It gets in. And then it also discerns the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is, it makes you unavoidably deal with the one. It gets inside, it judges you, It makes you deal with the one thing that's getting between you and God, which is you. It's you, your heart. And so it enables you to look at yourself and to see yourself. It forces you to see the truth about the world, yourself, and the truth about Jesus. And you're brought to this moment of clarity and a moment of response. And you end up crying out to God, okay, you win, you win. And that's unexpected. Hmm. We don't see it coming, but it happens. And we're swept off our feet by a powerful grace that draws us into the everlasting embrace of our Heavenly Father, into the glorious kingdom of Jesus, and into the gospel ministry of the Holy Spirit. That happened. That happened to me. And as I hear some of you tell me your stories as we go out for coffee, coffee, that happened to you. And it's fantastic. There are tons of stories. This happens every time as the word of God gets in. And the reason Paul is rejoicing because of the redemptive determination of God to save sinners, right? It's not up to us, it's really up to him, but he uses us to be able to, to have those conversations at the appointed time. Now, the way that those conversations most naturally take place, and normally in the history of the world, statistically, historically, universally, is through families and friendships. That is statistically the way that it most, I was told this story years ago about this, from this mom, 
and she was sitting at her kitchen window and looking at the swing set outside. And I knew the two boys because they came through our ministry. And she said, I remember the day when the older brother and the younger brother were sitting out on the swings. And I couldn't tell what they were talking about. But they told me later as the older brother was sharing the gospel with his younger brother on the swings. And so in the middle of swinging and talking about this, they stopped swinging. And the younger brother put down his head and prayed at that moment to say, I want to be a Christian. He prayed to receive Christ, if you want to put it that way. And so just on the swings, that's how those kinds of things happen all the time, all over the world. But sometimes God arranges something unique and special, and somebody who's never heard, never wanted to hear, God reaches in and does something. He reaches in and grabs that person and says, you're mine, and I'm pulling you to myself. So uh, a couple of years ago, I came across the name of a, a, a French theologian. He's a modern French theologian named uh, Guillaume Bignon. I, have I told that story? Because I always butcher that name. William Bignon. I don't know. Guillaume Bignon. So that's the way I'm going to say it. It makes me sound French. It makes me feel good. Um, so this is his story. He just wrote a book that's come out this year called The Confessions of a French Atheist. So as a young man, as an older young man, you know, in his 20s, he played, for, he played volleyball in France, and uh, he was actually pretty good. I think he may have played on the French national team. And uh, so that's, that was his identity. He said, I was an atheist. Uh, by the way, there's an interview, if you want to look on the podcast called Unbelievable. Uh, he told this story. Uh, I heard it again this week on Unbelievable. So he was a, an atheist, and uh, he didn't want anything to do with God. Grew up in a Catholic church and just said, when I got to a certain age, I just chucked the church, everything. I didn't want anything to do with Christianity because he thought it was intellectual suicide. It's crazy that people believe in this. So he threw himself into all the things that uh, a a French atheist would throw himself into. And uh, one day he and a friend just, and he said, they just ended up on this this trip going to the Bahamas. Maybe we're given a gift or something. And so he's walking outside the road and this, this car pulled up and he said, inside the car were these beautiful American girls. And so they stopped to just get directions. Well, they eventually ended up giving uh, Guillaume and his friend a ride to the hotel because they were kind of heading that direction. And there was one who was a former model. She lived in New York, and he just was smitten with her and decided what French uh, atheists would decide to do. And so he was kind of hitting on her, and uh, she said, I'm a Christian. And so he put, she, she, she said, I'm, we're not going to do anything like that, but we can have a conversation and have a relationship maybe. So the whole rest of the trip in the Bahamas, they're getting to know each other, and then they started dating, which your daughter shouldn't date a French atheist. Anyway, so, so she goes back to New York City, he goes back to France, but they're keeping this long-distance relationship, and he decided that he's going to talk her out of that crazy Christian stuff. So he starts to do a little research into it, and he starts reading the Bible, and he starts reading the, about Jesus, and he thought, all of a sudden, he's becoming a little bit intrigued by Jesus, because Jesus is not who he thought he was. And so he's reading the Bible, and uh, he gets to this point where he's saying, okay, um, maybe there is something to this. So he said, I prayed a prayer of unbelief. He said, fine, God, if you're real, let me know. Well, at this point, uh, he, he was expecting maybe lights or something that we might expect to happen in the room. Nothing happened except uh, that week at practice, something happened to his shoulder. Inexplicable. There's no reason for it. He didn't have an accident. His shoulder just started hurting, so he couldn't play volleyball anymore, and they released him. So he decides, since I have some free time on my hand, I'm going to go to a church. Why not? Because I'm dating this girl in the States, and, and uh, I, I guess I need to see what her little community, her little tribe is like. So he goes into the church. And so he's sitting there like you are, and maybe like some of you are. He is incredibly uncomfortable. 
It's this guy up front is preaching. He's complete and feeling like, I need to get out of this room. This is crazy. What are these people doing? They stand up, sit down, they sing. This guy's talking at us. What in the world? So when the sermon's over, he gets up and basically is running out of the room. And he got close to the door. He said, I felt this cold chill come over me. And he thought, what am I doing? If there's anything to this, I need to have some clarity about this. So he turned around and walked back and met the pastor, a guy named Robert. And so Robert and Guillaume started meeting and talking about the gospel and started talking about Christianity. And so what Guillaume said is at this point, his, um, all of his intellectual defenses and all the things he thought about Christianity began to be toppled one by one. And so all of his intellectual arguments against Christianity had, were falling apart. And he found himself in his apartment um, one day, and he said, you know, this is starting to make sense, you know, justice of God, why, are there, why is there something rather than nothing, that we have to have a creator, all of these things. And he said, but the thing that doesn't make any sense to me is why Jesus had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? So he actually vo- vocalized a prayer to God and said, why did Jesus have to die? And he said something happened that he was not expecting because, you know, you're thinking I'm going to get an intellectual response. I'm going to find a book or something. And he said, what God did was very different. He said, God reactivated my conscience. Three or four weeks before this prayer, and he's crying out for God, why did Jesus have to die? He had done something. And I've, I've, I've heard him, his interview, and I've read some stuff from him. He's, I don't think I've ever heard him say exactly what it was. But he said it was bad. It was bad by atheist standards whatever it was. And so he's in his apartment and God brings that to mind and it hits him how awful what he did was. And he realized, I am not a good person. And then it hit him. That's why Jesus had to die. Is God took my sins and he placed them on Jesus and Jesus died for my sins. When Jesus was dying, it wasn't this irrational event. It was actually a rescue. It's he's paying the debt for my sin so that I could go free. And that was when he was converted and brought to faith in Jesus, is at that moment. So now he, he, he debates, he writes, he blogs. Uh, he is a voice for the Christian faith among French-speaking people, which is this amazing thing, is a lot like Paul, as God takes somebody who is an opponent of Christianity and makes them somebody who is an advocate and a defender of the faith. Um, why did Jesus have to die for you and for me? And it's a beautiful thing. So there's an unexpected, unexpected avenue, and, G- and God takes us down paths we would not have chosen to accomplish plans we could never have foreseen. And it's pretty amazing how God does that. But then there's also an unexpected attention on the gospel. That's our last point. And we're going to try to pull together everything that we've said thus far. And, uh, you know, as you're reading through this, don't, and Paul is, they, the, the Philippian church, the Philippian church, by the way, was Paul's first congregation in Europe as a church planter. So that was the first one he planted. And don't you think when they heard that the, the, uh, Paul was put in prison, they said, oh no, oh no, how can this be? This is going to stop the forward movement of the gospel. How can this be? And so they were afraid and they were sad and maybe discouraged. And that's why I think this passage is really, really uh, important for us to read as modern Americans. Because as I listen to people, 
Um, in the United States, it feels like we're saying, oh no, oh no. And we're afraid and we're discouraged and we're angry and we decry what's going on and what's wrong with culture and what to do about it. And we seek a variety of means to alleviate our fear and we express anger and outrage. And uh, what he's telling us is, um, I want you to know that what has happened has really happened to advance the gospel. Like, we're saying, oh no. Why is he telling them this? Because we say, oh no. Why is he telling us this? It's because they're looking at what happened to Paul and they're like, I, I've got a worst case scenario. God cannot possibly redeem this. It's going in a terrible place. And Paul is saying, wait, what is happening may not be what you think is happening. This has really served to advance the gospel. How do you know that maybe God is not using what is happening right now in our culture, not to sink the ship, but maybe to right the ship? What if, what if Jesus is actually doing this to purge and purify his church, to force us to let go of all the unbiblical commitments that we have wrapped up in our versions of Christianity? And for a long time, in my lifetime, we have mixed the gospel with power. But as you read through the scripture, when you mix the gospel with anything, it become, you begin to lose the gospel. So um, a guy by the name of David French wrote this. He said, when Christian power is seen as indispensable for the flourishing of the Christian faith, history demonstrates that power, not faith, will become the priority for a Christian people. It's the same with anything. When, if there's anything that gets in there with the gospel with us, it becomes about that thing. Well, yeah, the gospel, but this, and that becomes the thing that we fight about most often. So if, if the church losing, we say, oh no, but Paul is addressing this kind of collective fear that American Christians have as the church loses some of its political power and cultural clout and the influence it once has, and we think it's ringing the death knell for the church, but it hasn't, and it can't. Because Jesus says, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what we think is happening, what we think is really going on may not really be what's going on. So Paul says, what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And God takes us down paths we would not have chosen to accomplish plans we could not have foreseen. Now, as I'm saying this, right, God is not saying that his, that his plans always advance our purposes, as God's people, our purposes submit to his, and sometimes our plans get derailed, as Paul's were, but the gospel is still going forward. So think about the church in Acts. If you've read through the book of Acts, you know the, when the gospel first goes in, there's, the people are full of joy, they're celebrating, it's fantastic. They think we're gonna, God is going to usher in his kingdom right now in this place in Jerusalem at this time, and then persecution broke out. And that was surprising. They didn't expect that to, to take place. But then what happened is God forced them out. And when you read through the book of Acts, it says everywhere that these Christians went after they were scattered and moved out of Jerusalem, they proclaimed the gospel everywhere they went. So God had to push them out of Jerusalem for the message of the gospel to spread. How do we know that maybe he's not doing this? Maybe what's going on, uh, maybe to be courageous enough to share the gospel in the U.S., we have to grow past being so concerned about we what we might lose. And we have to trust God's promises that what is coming is better. Because if Jesus is all you have, then Jesus is all you're going to try to give other people. But if you have Jesus and these other things, then, well, 
I'm going to be trying to sell these things as well. And so Paul says things like, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So sometimes we lose things in order to become more attuned to what God is telling us to do. He takes us down a different path. I know some of you say this, and I, I feel this, is that I'm afraid for my kids. I'm afraid for my grandkids and what's going to happen. I feel that, and some of you are nodding along. But maybe we don't have to worry about our kids. Maybe we don't really have to worry about them. What if God is letting this happen to clarify for our kids what the gospel really is? Because a lot of them today don't really have an idea of what the gospel is, right? What if, it's, what if they're having to realize it's not middle-class American values, it's something else? It's something else. Uh, I told, talked earlier about the persecution that was in Ethiopia, and it was a fascinating thing going there and talking to them post persecution and everybody said the same thing during persecution the church grew just like we're talking about the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church the church grew the pastors were all put in jail and maybe that's the problem maybe we need to put pastors in jail i don't know so all the pastors were put in jail and all and the church grew by leaps and bounds and so we're talking i was talking to them maybe 20 years afterwards and what they said was affliction was much more beneficial for our children in the long run than our affluence because our affluence choked out the gospel. We watch our kids now rejecting Christianity because they're becoming too affluent. Do you see that? That's not the way we think. That's not the way we think about the world. We don't want our children to go through hard things, but sometimes it's the hard things they go through that lead them to the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our children sometimes need to go through that. And we need to go through that with them and prepare them for that. But we don't need to be afraid of that. I don't know. Things might get hard. Uh, it might be hard for people to listen. Um, the hardship we have faced. But think about it this way. So many of you in here have told me stories about how when you were individually going through something really difficult, a health scare, something in your marriage, something with your children, that God met you in the brokenness of that moment. What if his goal is to meet a broad cross-section of people in the brokenness of the moment? What if that's what he's doing? What if he has something really redemptive in mind? What if the digging we see God doing right now is not him getting ready to bury the church? Maybe he's tilling up the ground to grow something better, something that gives him the credit, something we can't engineer, something we can't do church planning to bring about, but it's something that God himself has said, I'm going to do this in my own way at my own time, unplanned by us and unexpected by us, which is, tends to be the way that God works. We don't know. I don't know. This is, this is not prophetic. <laughs> I'm just kind of looking at the world around me and saying, how does Paul here in this passage help us think about this? You know, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I'm in jail. But what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. And maybe, maybe if we go through hard things, both individually, maybe even nationally, that's where we need to look is to say, there's some hard things that we're going through. But this is advancing the gospel. And we know that he, we, we don't know what he's going to do. We know that he loves us. We know that we can trust him. And we know that he will never ask us to do anything harder for us than Jesus did for, harder from us than Jesus did for us. Right? We know that. So how's he working in hard things? Some of you uh, are glued to the news and you're still watching or we're watching what's going on in Ukraine. 
and there's some, like defensives this week, and they're trying to gain ground. And uh, we don't get the full picture. We just get, to get what's on the news. But I heard a story in the past couple of weeks that I thought was really fascinating. As you know, a lot of Ukrainians have left with their families and things because it's a battleground. They've gone all over the world. And uh, there was a group of Ukrainians that were looking. They, they were able to come in to the United States and have asylum here. And uh, of all places, they just kind of randomly chose, randomly chose, Northport, Florida, which is down around in kind of the Sarasota, I think, area. And uh, so these Ukrainian, Russian-speaking people have moved to that part of Florida, and they just chose a place on the map as far as they knew. But uh, what they didn't know is that recently a church planter who was born in one of the Slavic states who spoke Russian uh, by the name of Alexei Zhuravlev, that's hard to say, by the way, Alexei Zhuravlev, he's been in the process of planting a Russian-speaking church in North Port, Florida. And so when they came in, there's already a ready-made Russian-speaking church for them. I went to their website. You can't read it. <laughs> it's, it's all in Russian, right? It's Russian to me. And uh, so God has gone before them. He knew what he was doing. They went through really, really hard things. I know that was hard to be forced out, to be afraid. But God has gone before them even providing a church family for them in their new home, the new place of operations in the United States. It's a picture of God's goodness, and he knows what he's doing. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. Sometimes you may not know the mind of God, but you can trust his heart. He loves his people. If he gave his only son, our Lord Jesus, to save us from ultimate peril, we can trust him in all the circumstances of our lives. We can trust him when he says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. What happens to us always takes place within the will of the one who loves us. We don't have to be afraid, but we can hang on to that. What is happening, what is happening, God is in, he's involved with, and he may be doing great things beyond what I ever would have intended or expected or planned because he is wise and good and loving. Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.